Hey everyone, welcome to season one, episode seven of the Matt Martial Arts Podcast. This week, I had I had the real pleasure of interviewing Randy McAwee from uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Athens in uh, Athens, Georgia. Uh, Randy is a cool guy with a really rich history of, uh, you know, uh, fluency across multiple martial arts. Uh, the one that we really drilled down on, though, is his experience in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, where he's a black belt. And uh, he is also talking, he talks about his experiences as uh, as a Green Beret in the U.S. Special Forces, how he got into it, and also how his early training really shaped uh, the way that he thought about, about training, about training for martial arts, and also spreading, you know, and instructing with, uh, with his peers. Um, he has a really cool story also how he was one of the uh, one of the first, if not the first people to introduce Gracie combatives to our special forces uh, teams in the U.S. Army, uh, which Randy was a part of. Um, and also it, the part that I found probably most interesting, too, and I'm going to drop a link. I'm going to make sure that I drop a link to Randy's site, to uh, his website and his socials. So you can check out his background. Uh, because I can't, I can't really do it justice here. He has a really, really rich history here in the cross martial arts. Um, one of the things I found most interesting, though, was how Randy, as his role as an instructor, one of the most important things to him is as somebody comes in to train, he really tries to develop the rapport with them and understand why it is that they're training, so that he can he can custom fit the their training to. A, keep them inspired, but also B, let them get the most out of it. And so I found that really that found that really interesting because I do think that as an instructor, it's probably one of the hardest things that you can do is to be very flexible to different types of uh, use cases and sort of why people start training. So anyhow, I had a great conversation with Randy. He's a great guy. I feel like we're fast friends. I'm going to try to make it down to Georgia to go do some training with him. If he comes out to LA, I'm definitely going to roll out the red carpet for him as much as I can. So um, like I said, I will leave the the links to his socials, his website and whatnot. So you can be sure to check that out. Um, and uh, just had a great time taping this. He's a great guy with a really, really cool backstory. And for those of you that know me, it's like I'm all about the origin story. So this was this was one of the really good ones. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Hey, Randy, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, obviously, we were just talking before we started rolling, and it's I would love for you to give the listeners just a, just a quick glimpse into your background and kind of like your origin story, what got you into martial arts, and also a bit about your military background and also, you know, how your school came to be and and kind of like what keeps you passionate about uh, about training. Be happy to do that. It sounds like it's going to be a long story, though, because there's a lot to to that, and I love to talk about why I'm still in jiu-jitsu. But I, I started out in martial arts uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, I lived in a small rural town in West Virginia, and I started with a Japanese karate class. But um, at the time, even though it, it didn't cost very much, I, I, my family really couldn't afford it. It was kind of hard to get to. It just wasn't easy for me to make it happen. And even though I was excited about it, I really couldn't pursue it. So. Um, you know, not long after that, I graduated high school, went to work, uh, construction work, because initially nobody in my family had ever gone to college. And so I didn't really feel like I was college material, like I was smart enough, never seen anybody do it. And as a consequence, work was the best option. But it didn't take me very long before I figured out that 
you know, getting up early, working long days and, you know, being exhausted at the end of the day was not how I wanted to spend my life. So I, you know, kind of took a look at some things, decided that maybe the military would be an option for me. I had kind of gotten to know the local uh, army recruiter because, you know, they come out, check out all the high school folks when they're seniors based on your, you know, ASVAB score, which is the military's version of the SAT. So uh, I've done well on that. I was a football player, you know, fairly athletic. So the, he came out, uh, touched base with me. And by the time he got to me, I'd already graduated and I had the construction job. So uh, he really kind of said, hey, I don't think, you know, the Army's right for you. You're doing great. You got a job, you know, continue with that. But, uh, you know, we had talked a little bit. He was an avid deer hunter. And so I kind of, you know, clued him into some deer hunting spots in West Virginia and as a result, kept, you know, kind of mildly in touch with him. Uh, like I said, it didn't take long working the construction job before I figured out, hey, I got to do something else. And and after, uh, you know, about a year of it, I was more than willing to get shot at rather than work construction. So I uh, got in touch with him. He still tried to discourage me from it, but I talked him into finally, you know, telling me a little bit about my options in the military. And he left a little brochure you know booklet with me and I kind of looked through it and all the stuff in it that appealed to me because I was into being outdoors and and you know doing some physical stuff was directed towards airborne um, uh, rangers and special forces the airborne stuff I said no to right away because I was afraid of heights I'm still afraid of heights and that really was not something I was interested in doing and then the ranger stuff looked interesting. They're out in the woods. It looked like they're having a good time. But the special forces had in the booklet had a guy coming up with scuba gear on in a swamp. And for whatever reason, that looked like it would be, you know, something I would enjoy. So I got to talking to him about it. The first thing he told me is, well, you know, if you want to go ranger or special forces, you got to go airborne first. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't think I could do it. I, I'm not sure about that. So I kind of initially declined thought about it for a minute it kept eating at me and then I got back with them and at the time they had this uh kind of unique opportunity to go directly off the street and into special forces it wasn't something they normally offered usually you've got to be uh you know have a couple years of army experience be uh, a sergeant already before you qualify to try out for special forces but I got this option and went in and gave it a shot and uh you know by the luck of God and uh, a lot of help from the, the guys who knew what they were doing there, I got through. I, I got through because those guys helped me out. They thought it was, you know, humorous that I was young and, and naive and that I was willing to give this a try. And basically, I really didn't know that I wasn't cut out to make it. And those guys helped me through it. And as a result, I made it to Special Forces. Well, once I got there, uh, I kind of got the you know, the, the idea and the realization that, man, I've got to step it up. I've got to really start to figure this stuff out. And uh, so from there, I, you know, started trying to become an integral part of the team and get better at, at being a special forces soldier. Along the way, I still had that interest in martial arts. And once my training kind of stabilized and I got in a, a spot that was a little more, you know, consistent to where I was around enough, and now I had the, the money in order to do it. I started training in a traditional form of karate 
that was Shotokan based and got my first black belt in Shotokan. Uh, once I started doing that, I had made connections and, and you know, wanted to continue and get better at it and uh, started to bring some of it back to my teams that I was on and, you know, share it. Well, eventually that led to me working on a, uh, a project for the Special Forces to develop a training program for military combatives. And when all of that was going down, we were looking at a lot of different systems you know, we looked at Krav Maga, we were looking at uh, Aikido, we we're looking at uh, a system called SCARS that the, the Navy had done a lot with, some other, you know, various programs. And I had met another guy that was a Special Forces soldier that had trained, um, you know, the Shotokan-based system as well. And we became good friends. And he invited me over to his house to watch the first UFC. And... Um, you know, told and everything story. changed. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I saw, you know, Hoist Gracie get in there. And at the time, I would have bet, you know, a whole paycheck on some of those other guys that they might knock him out, that, that he really didn't have much of a chance. He wasn't he wasn't big. He wasn't buffed. He was, you know, very normal looking guy. But, uh, you know, you can never look at a person and identify the heart that they, they're going to fight with. And you most, most certainly cannot... Uh, you know, anticipate the skill they might have. And, and I think he shocked the world with what he was able to do with Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And so from there, I started uh, pursuing that and trying to get more knowledgeable. And at the time, it was almost non-existent, especially being stationed in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. There was just, there was no place around that we knew of at the time that offered Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. You know, where now you can walk down the street and and find versions of it almost anywhere in any town. And, um, you know, back then, nobody had even heard of it. The closest we could do was find, uh, you know, Japanese jujitsu. And the, the gentleman that had got me started and got me hooked by showing me that first UFC had, you know, been a judo black belt when he first started his martial arts training. And he had some connections with guys that, um, you know, trained traditional Japanese jujitsu. And so we started there, started looking at it, and the whole time kept trying to find actual Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And uh, eventually we, we learned that Horian had set up these regional training programs for people that were bringing Gracie Jiu-Jitsu into their martial arts schools and uh, you know teaching it. And we located these regional seminars that he was conducting, him and Hoyce and, and other, you know, uh, instructors at the time that he was bringing with him. And there was one, we were centrally located between Memphis, Tennessee and Lexington, Kentucky. And once we kind of figured it out, there was one every six months, one would, they would alternate. One would be in um, Memphis, Tennessee. The other one would be in Lexington, Kentucky. And so we started attending those. The first one I went to was at uh, Chad Chilcutt School uh, it wasn't actually at his school, but it's his school that sponsored it at a, a recreation center there. And he had Hoist come in, and that was my first opportunity to train real Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So, and, and you know, once you get a real taste of it, it's uh, it's an addiction. You know, there's there's really uh, there's no 12-step program for it. You just got to keep, keep going. It is a super healthy addiction. And so, you know, and, and when I look, you know, when I look at your bio, you know, you're 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 so well-versed, you know, you have black belts in multiple styles, 
And, uh, and it's just, it's just very impressive. And I think that what really jumps out at me is you overcame your fear of heights. You know, you, you had to go through airborne to get to the place you wanted to be. And I, I too, am afraid of heights. Right. And that was something that kept me out of the military. So you overcame your fear of heights to get to where you wanted to be. And then, you know, you've had an amazing career and, and I know you well enough to know that you're not going to like go into all the accolades, but let's just say you've had an amazing career on the military. And so now you're going through and you're kind of paying back into the martial arts and specifically around jujitsu by, by being an instructor and by having an academy. Can you tell me a little bit about your academy and kind of like what got you started down that path? Absolutely. The, the real reason that I started the academy uh, you know, it was very personal. And, um, you know, I, I had developed this program for the special forces that centered around uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu while I was in fifth special forces group. And we were conducting it. We were going to um, those you know, seminars every six months, uh, as long as our schedules would allow, bringing back the techniques. I was training my team and then a couple other teams began to join us and we, it, you know, started to grow and we developed a program. I put together you know, an entire curriculum that I was sharing with other teams and other people that wanted to train. That was kind of one of my you know, side specialties that I developed while I was in the military. And one of the things I continue to do, and I tell a lot of folks that you know, my jujitsu comparatively may not be that great compared to a lot of the folks that are doing it, but the talent I have is being able to take what I know and put it into a, an effective program and help as many people as possible, you know, be able to get as close to my level of understanding of it, you know, as they can. And so that's really my talent is being able to put together programs. And so that kind of led to a discussion of me taking a job in special forces. I was nearing the end of my operational time and I was going to take a position to run our isolation facility, which is where we bring teams right before they deploy for you know, the, their missions, either training or real world, and get them prepared for whatever they're going to encounter. I would run that facility. And in that facility, we'd already developed, uh, you know, put together a training room that we, we never had until I was there. And we got it set up. And the goal was for me to be the instructor. Teams would come in, I would teach them. And there was even talk that, you know, once I retired a couple years after that, they would offer me a civilian position to continue doing that because combatives was starting to take hold at the time. And uh, they'd done that for other types of positions that you know had special skills for the group. But then one morning I was teaching my, my special forces team. At the time I was in charge of our special projects division, which is like our plain clothes section. It was my last operational assignment. And I would have my guys out on the mats there every Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would force them to train, you know, our military combatives and, and you know, try to spread the, the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu philosophy uh, as I understood it at the time. And then during one of those training sessions, uh, we had some planes that crashed into the Twin Towers, you know, into the Pentagon, one crashed in Pennsylvania and 9-11 happened. As soon as that occurred, everything changed. Uh, the entire, you know, concept and all these, you know, dreams, wishes, and plans went out the window. You know, that day, uh, you know, we found out like right after we concluded training, the base locked down. We were stuck there, you know, for um, I think 28 hours before we were able to to even think about going home. 
you know, everything was being packed up, prepared. And immediately after that, we had teams from our group that were launching into Afghanistan and, and you know, on various other missions to, you know, respond to this 9-11 attack. And, um, you know, throughout that process after uh, Afghanistan, I got my choice of assignment and I, I came to the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, and, um, you know, because I, I was a, a big dogs fan. They just won the their second consecutive national championship. They were out there in your area uh, playing. And so, you know, that was kind of a big opportunity for me. I chose to go there and uh, I was the senior NCO or senior non-commissioned officer at the military science department for the University of Georgia. And then uh, I retired from there. But while I was there, with this major change of goals and direction, I, uh, you know, I'd been offered several jobs as a civilian to do what I had previously done in the military to do, to be a civilian contractor for work for different agencies and things like that. But it really didn't appeal to me because I had waited, uh, you know, to have my son uh, until I was close to the end of my military career. So my goal had been to retire and spend time with him. And I, and like I said, he was very young. He was only a year old, um, you know, once the 9-11 attacks happened. And so immediately I was gone a good bit and, and things were very up in the air. So once I decided to retire, I really didn't want to go back to a job that was going to cause me to be away. I wanted to have a career that would allow me to be with him day in and day out and spend a lot of time and, and, you know, do that. I, I I was on my second marriage, which is typical for the military. And the kids from my first, you know, marriage, it, it was a very difficult relationship, very strained, didn't get to spend a lot of time together. I really didn't want to see that happen again. Um, so I chose uh, to open a martial arts school. I thought, man, what a great way to uh, go ahead and, and have, you know, that opportunity to spend with him every day. I was able to bring him to the school, you know, and, and do that. But the, the other challenge at the time is I was still primarily a karate guy. I was, I'd only, um, I'd gotten my blue belt from Hoist Gracie, um, but I didn't really have a thorough understanding of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. I knew just enough to realize I knew nothing. And, you know, you, we all know how that is. That's where I still am. Yeah. You know what? I'm back there again as a black belt. <laughs> so it's a continuing process. And uh, so I, I started looking around while I was running the school and found a place that was two hours away and kind of built my schedule so that every Wednesday I would drive two hours, uh, wind up going through a big chunk of Atlanta traffic and go train. Uh, I would normally go, I would do a, a, you know, a combatives class. Originally it wasn't combatives, but it was a fundamentals class and then um, stay do a master cycle class or an intermediate class role. And then, you know, after a little while, I started adding private lessons onto that. And then I would jump in the car, head back to Athens, get back just in time to teach my classes at my academy. So, you know, two hours each way, at least once a week. And then, you know, most of the time, uh, three times a week. And I did that for nine years till I, I got to my brown belt. So I could, you know, really start to understand Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And that's kind of how you know, I started to to develop the academy. So first off, thank you so much. I know I said this before we started taping, right? Thank you so much for your service, your courage. I appreciate your, your gratitude. 
No, it's it's there are there are a lot of people that would echo my sentiment, right? It's like we wouldn't have the freedoms and the lifestyle that we have if it wasn't for people who have the courage and the selflessness like like you've shown. So thank you very much. And so my pleasure. Another thing that jumps out at me, it was kind of cool, something you said a couple of minutes ago was how you are you adapt, like you use your your context and your experience to really work with each student to, to modify, you know, so obviously there are some basic tenets of jujitsu, right? But it is an art. And it's like, you know, the people I believe who get the best at it are the ones that make those slight little modifications based on their own, you know, body types, preferences. Some people hate being on their back. Some people love being on their back. You make those slight tweaks, right? So you as an instructor can, can understand somebody because the person who's coming in, who's the you know, ex division one college athlete is a very different person than the person who's never done martial arts getting started at 40. Um, and they, they have different goals, they have different body types, oftentimes and levels of athleticism. Right. And I know that was another thing that we talked about before was finding goals that are applicable for you, your level and sort of, you know, what it is you're trying to get out of your training. Right. I know that I put a few things kind of there together, but let me sum it up with, um, so it's really impressive when an instructor, which my instructors are amazing at this, right? They'll come up and based on my body type experience, and whatnot, they'll show me a tweak to a technique that that opens up doors and makes something that I was struggling with. All of a sudden it works and works really well. Um, can you talk about sort of that, like on, on the physical aspect where, you know, you work with people in different types, but then also the emotional aspect of setting goals that make sense for each individual? Absolutely. And, and really, that kind of starts as soon as somebody walks through the door at our academy and, and expresses an interest to us in jujitsu. One of the first things we want to find out is, you know, why? Why are you here? Why do you want to learn jujitsu? And, and, you know, what's, what's it all about for you? And when you listen to people about, you know, why they're doing it and kind of, you know, internalize that, then you get an idea of how you need to approach them and how you're going to want to proceed. Uh, you know, obviously, for everybody, we start with a very, you know, uh, you know, off the rack approach to where they learn the techniques. And, you know, one of the things you're, you're probably seeing in your journey, and, and I think a lot of people see this, is it's really about the principles of jujitsu as opposed to the techniques. And, you know, there's there's thousands of techniques, but the principles can be boiled down and, you know, actually bridge the gap between a lot of things that you don't even know. So what we need to do initially is give them enough techniques so they can develop frames of reference for those principles that we want them to learn. And once we kind of understand why they're doing jujitsu, then we can kind of focus on, you know, bringing out those principles. And, you know, we use a very structured curriculum approach. Not everybody does. We, we do that because of my military background. And like I said, my experience in putting together those programs and, once we get them through that process initially and they have that foundation, then it's easy to, to talk to them and show them the principles. And then they have a frame of reference from some of those techniques that they've already learned. And then they can translate it and a lot of times even figure out how to deal with situations that they haven't seen because they understand the principle, not just the technique. That is a really interesting distinction, right? And so Hiron and Henner put out the 32 principles and I, I got it as soon as it was available. And I know that <laughs> definitely turned on quite yes, a few light bulbs for me. 
Because you're right, it does. You know, you have that that frame of reference, you have that context, and you understand the why. Again, it comes down to the why, right? And so one of the other things, too, that we've talked about, and um, just kind of, you know, kudos to you on this. Uh, Obviously, we got introduced to through uh, Tony, Tony White from Shoshin Jiu-Jitsu in Erie, Pennsylvania. Tony's, you know, become a very good friend of mine. Tony connected the two of us. And ever since our first sort of message back and forth, you've just been the friendliest, you know, you treat me like family and we've never even met in person, (laughs) which is something that's super impressive. Um, One of the things that really jumps out at me, the importance of culture in a school, right? And I know it was something that we've spoken about before. How do you really set that culture in your school to make sure that as somebody is a, a really big, and I guess just going back a second, um, this podcast is really a passion project for me because you can have somebody who's trained jujitsu and they didn't have a great experience. You know, maybe they're in the wrong type of culture, wrong type of academy. They didn't have enough structure, whatever it may be. I want them to hear this podcast and say, whoa, whoa, I need to check out what this would be like if I had the right culture, right structure, right, et cetera, because I think, I think jujitsu is for everybody. On the other side of the coin, you know, you have somebody who says, well, I, I'm 40, I can't train. It's like, you know, I'm too old. Everybody's 20. No, it's, that's definitely not the truth either. If you go into an academy that has the right culture, something that's welcoming, something that's tailored to your specific circumstances, as you were just talking about, so just with that as sort of a basis, like when you think about somebody walking through the door and you've obviously got the off the rack that you're going to teach them, then how do you set the culture to make it where it's it's welcoming and hard enough to still be valuable, right? I, I guess that's probably the question. How do you set that that thermostat? Well, you know, one of the things that that's beautiful about jujitsu and the great lesson in it, as in life, is that small details make a huge difference in any endeavor for success. And the culture is everything. And, you know, I've had experiences on both sides. You know, the military doesn't always have the most welcoming culture for some of the training events that they conduct. They they try to prepare you for, you know, when things aren't great. And as a result, you know, you, you see the other side of it and you see that, you know, training can be miserable or training can can be fun and it can be, you know, a, a bettering experience for you. The, you know, the, the hard training has hidden lessons in it, like those principles and, and those, you know, are brought out wonderfully by jujitsu. But if you can't stick around long enough to get through those and trust the people that are trying to teach you those hard lessons, then you'll never get them. So, you know, it's important that you first, you know, have fun with it and begin to trust the people that are teaching you. The, I, I learned a lot while I was in the military. I got a special assignment, uh, you know, toward the, the second half of my career as a special forces soldier. Uh, I was sent to the Ranger Battalion, and I was sent there right after the Black Hawk Down incident to be a special consultant and, and uh, work in their medical section to, to help them be better prepared because they were making some adjustments in the grand training program for all special operations. Well, when I did that, I grew up as a soldier in special forces. We're pretty laid back overall. In fact, a lot of people, you know, see it and experience and they're like, man, those guys are unprofessional because the guys, you know, like to stay relaxed, have a good time. They don't get too wound up in anything until it's time to be, you know, extremely serious. 
On the other side of the coin, the Rangers are extremely serious, probably all the time. And so when I arrived down there, Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky Special Forces guy, the Rangers weren't necessarily as welcoming right away. <laughs> and it was a big period of adjustment for me. And then one of the things I learned once they finally accepted me, because it's kind of a wolf pack culture there. So, you know, they'll nip at you. And you if you don't nip back, then, you know, they, they'll write you off and you won't have anything to do with you. So once I, I you know, realized that and bit back a little bit, a lot of it with some combatives and some Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, then, you know, things were worked out. And I realized that those two different worlds kind of gave me a really great way to bracket my approach to anything that I could be interesting, happy-go-lucky and then keep that serious component. But in order to bring other people on board and get to that serious component, I had to make sure that they were, you know, having a good time and feeling welcome from the beginning. And, uh, and I got a lot of it initially from Horian and Hoyce. When I first started training with them, you know, I was still in that special forces mindset of, you know, being fairly serious, you know, joking around and, and having that as, you know, special forces culture. But, you know, I was still very serious about my combatives training. And once I met them and realized, man, these guys are super nice. And I was like, you know what? I really would want to be more like that. I want to be nice. There's no reason not to be nice. And so I started, you know, picking that up from them and started to translate it into the school. And now it's one of the things we teach our folks first and foremost by example, whenever they come in. And then we actually have our own internal instructor training programs here at the Academy. We've had them for years and, and even have, you know, put together and worked on the instructor development program for the Pedro Sauer Association. But a big key of that is teaching people some basic skills on how to be nice. And one of the principles I brought from Special Forces, because we do work with a lot of foreign, you know, um, soldiers, a lot of foreign organizations. And part of our mission is to go deep behind enemy lines for a long duration, partner with uh, a, you know, indigenous force and kind of win them over so that they will allow us to train them and lead them on combat missions to, to work against the enemy. And, you know, that's exactly what happened in Afghanistan with, you know, guys from special forces uh, linking up with uh, members of the Northern Alliance and fighting the Taliban. So these uh, techniques and skills of learning to build rapport were kind of an inherent part of what I've been doing for years. And so I just had to kind of, you know, see them a little differently and apply them to, you know, working with civilians and getting them to love jujitsu the way I did. And it's pretty easy, you know, with jujitsu because it's so much fun and there's no reason to ruin the fun by, you know, not having a good attitude towards it. We, I like to joke that, you know, about the military is that they'll take any activity that you love and turn it into pure misery. You know, there's, uh, you know, aerobics, jogging, uh, scuba diving, skydiving, you know, camping, they take all those things and take the fun right out of it. So we try not to do that. And we, we start by, you know, being very basic and friendly when we see people for the first time, making, you know, we, we use what we call the three times rule, uh, three, three types of contact, at least three times when a person comes in, we, we make direct eye contact. Uh, you know, we have direct verbal contact, usually as soon as possible by learning their name and using it. And then you know, we use direct physical contact, you know, which is appropriate physical contact. Because with jujitsu, you've got to immediately 
as instructors start to you know move a person's hand, move their foot, position them correctly. So you got to get them comfortable with that type of close physical interaction. That's super, super interesting. And also, I'm still laughing about your your initial observation when you were back in high school and you saw the Rangers, like just some guys hanging out in the forest camping and having fun. That that that's definitely funny. Um, no, Man, so I was I, wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, my cousin, my cousin was a ranger, and he now he lives over in Germany. He married a German girl. They have a deli, and uh, he's since retired. I think he also works for Lufthansa as a translator. He speaks multiple languages fluently, and uh, he told me some some pretty pretty wild stories about training and sort of pushing through fear. Um, but pushing through fear, I mean, it's it's one of those things that I talk about in my daily life with people is that. It, if you stay static and if you never push your comfort zone, you can always be safe, but you're kind of like slowly but surely like backsliding and dying, right? There has to be some of that pursuit where you do something that you maybe think that you can't necessarily do, but you're in the, you're in the place where you can fail enough times and sort of be the beginner and take in the, you know, take in the instruction to get better at it and to have the perseverance to continue to, to, um, to iterate until you get it right. So when, so when you think about sort of because you know, you've, you've been in jujitsu since the very early days. Right. And so obviously you've seen uh, a massive explosion in the popularity of jujitsu, which I believe is an amazingly good thing, right? As long as the culture is good, I think jujitsu is great for everybody. And um, with that explosion, obviously there's, you know, just a lot of change. So when you think back to your first experiences with jujitsu, uh, Brazilian Gracie jujitsu, and what it is now, how like how does that look to you, and like how does it feel? Well, it, it's especially interesting because, like I said, when I first started, I was doing it uh, from a military standpoint to gain the training and add it into our arsenal, you know, for the special forces teams. And you know, what, eventually we got the the fifth group to bring. Corey and Gracie in to do training with us. And I was lucky enough when that happened to, you know, be his sponsor while he was with us and kind of take him around in the evenings. I took him to some of our training events, got him out there, let him shoot some weapons and see what we were doing and, you know, experience that. But I also got to spend quite a few evenings with him, having dinner, talking to him. And while I was driving him around, I got a lot of insight into his incredible mind. And, and for those who discredit him, they don't know. He just had a birthday, but um, he's a genius. And he was a genius back then because he saw all of this. He he had a plan back then and clearly articulated it to me and everybody he, he ran into how he was going to make jujitsu world famous. And he did it. And, you know, the, the thing about it, now that we, we see it, is that you have to realize, and one of the things I see more than anything is, now there's actually two branches of jiu-jitsu. There's Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is the competitive sport variation that everybody's adapted and applied rules to and have really, you know, a lot of people have grown to that. And people love competition and love games, and, and they've been really drawn to that. And then there's the original, authentic Gracie jiu-jitsu that's focused on self-defense. And, you know, I frequently see that they, these two systems exist. And the the common person just starting out doesn't realize there's a different, you know, difference between the two. And with that, it's important to, you know, when people first come in to identify what are they here for? Because, 
if they're here for the competition, you know what we and we tell them, hey, look, we can help you with that. We can give you the techniques. We can develop skills for you. But it's not really what we do. We are focused on self-defense. And, you know, once somebody tells us that, hey, self-defense is what I'm what I'm here for, then we can really, you know, kind of dial in and help them perfect that because they are completely separate at this time. I have this this argument and discussion with my friends that that are very, you know, oriented on the sport because a lot of them will swear there's no difference. And I disagree. Yeah, and I disagree. One of the ways I, I explain that to them is, well, what if I I laid a, a you know a six inch wide board on the ground here and got you to walk back and forth on it? You know, do you think you could do that? Of course they could. You do it a few times. Now we're going to take the same board. We're going to go downtown. I'm going to put it on top of a three or four story building across the street. And I want you to do the exact same thing. The techniques are the same, right? Yes. The, but the risk and the odds and what could happen are extremely different. So, you know, that's really the, the major, um, you know, change in jujitsu. And, and I remind people that it's evolved because the competition is directed and managed by weight classes, whereas self-defense, you never know what weight class you're going to be in, you know, yes. you, and generally it's not going to be someone your size who, you know, decides to attack you. It's going to be somebody that's a minimum of six inches taller, 60 pounds or more heavier. They're going to be bigger than you, probably stronger than you and, and highly likely angrier than you. So you've got to be ready to deal with that intensity and that difference in size and strength. Intensity. Yeah. You know what, what, that's a really cool, really cool analogy, right? I mean, that's like the, the tight wire, the, the tight rope walking. Right. And that's really, when you think about what that is, I mean, a physical altercation is that combat. And, you know, you have adrenaline, you have anxiety of all these different things and, uh, and punch block awareness is absolute key and positional control. You get on top of somebody, you stay safe. You don't need to like do a flying arm bar, right? It's like, you just need to, you just need to, block punches, stay safe, get on top and let, you know, let things sort of chill out a little bit. That's, that's a really cool analogy. And, and I think that, um, you know, I love, I love watching sport jujitsu and, and, and I know some sport guys who are absolutely amazing and just the transitions and just how fluid they are. It's just beautiful. But I, you know, I train for self-defense and, and I love the practicality aspect of it because I'm not, I'm not a flashy guy by any stretch. And that, but that's a really, that's a really cool way of putting it there. And I think it is really critical that somebody understands what it is that they want to do, you know, coming in and also your, you know, your, your athletic background, you know, some people are more athletic than others. Some people are tougher, stronger, braver than others, you know, in, in outward ways. And, you know, Gracie jujitsu, I believe is the most effective method of self-defense that is also the most intelligent in my very biased opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tend to agree with you. We did a lot of research, like I said, when we were searching for programs to base the, the training for the special forces on before. And one of the things that we did discover is that it's that approach, that philosophy that goes along with the actual techniques and training that make it so effective. And, and you know, for us at the time, we had pictured it as, you know, uh, as applying our principles of speed, surprise and violence of action. And, you know, those are important. And I think also a lot of times people coming in to start training, 
have a, a huge misconception about violence. They don't understand that there are people out there that can take violence to a level that you know is just unbelievable in a split second because their mentality is different. And you know they, they haven't experienced that level of violence, so they're not prepared for it no matter how many sport techniques they know. And, you know, I had guys that, that I was in special forces with that had very little actual training, but when it came time to be violent, these guys, you know, they could turn it on in a second. It was their personality and it was just inherent to them for whatever reason, and they could really bring destruction. And so it's out there in the world and, and you have to, you know, work on how to, how to deal with that because it's a whole different level. And so you've got to have techniques and a mindset that default to things that are automatically going to support you protecting yourself. And those positions are key. You know, you're not going to be able to just put yourself in a turtle position and hope that the guy doesn't, you know, elbow smash you in the back of the head. You're not going to be able to do De La Hiva guard or some of these other things that are going to open you up to destructive techniques from somebody who doesn't know that you're playing jujitsu. They don't care. They just want to inflict violence. Yeah. You know, and, and you just said two like really important things that just jumped out at me. So growing up playing hockey, I, I know one guy, there's one guy that just comes to mind where he would go from calm to explosive in a heartbeat. Yes. And, and there was very little slowing down in this person, right? There was like a level of adrenaline where, also, he didn't feel certain things. If if pain was inflicted on him when he was in that mode, simply <laughs> didn't feel it. So, I, you know, and, and there has to be that reaction. You know, it's like the thing that comes to mind first for me really is manage the distance and you manage the damage, right? And I think that's a beautiful like principle. It's a beautiful principle just like for life in general. But obviously when you're thinking about, you know, physically protecting yourself, if you can get really close to somebody and sort of take away their range of motion, it also inhibits their leverage, right? And it's like, if you can get really close and stay glued to them, hopefully it's going to tire them out. You know, hopefully it's going to like, you know, you're going to keep that closeness to like keep yourself safe. And, but it has to be automatic, right? Because if I'm taking, if I'm taking, you know, three or four or five seconds to think of, okay, what, what do I do in this situation? It, it's already too late, right? It's already over. I'm laying on the ground trying to figure out what just happened to me if I'm lucky. Right. right. And so, and so I think that that's like, like really critical. And, and so I know that that jujitsu and self-defense can be intimidating for some people. And I've had a lot of these conversations over the years because my background was, you know, also as a teenager, I started training karate and it was, it was fantastic. It's like, I still am friends with a lot of the people I went through and got my first black belt with. I'm still friends with them to this day. Um, but it was, there was definitely more of a, it was a very safe environment. And you didn't encounter somebody who is explosively angry, right? And so, you know, you have that real conversation with somebody and, you know, I, I see two camps, right? Normally one camp is, oh yeah, it's no problem. Like I, I got this, it's it's no problem, right? But they don't really understand how deep the ocean can be. <laughs> and then the other camp, then the other camp that sort of doesn't want to acknowledge it. I remember seeing UFC one and I, I was a karate black belt. And I remember seeing the look in Hoyce's eyes. I'm like, wow, this guy is just different. Like he looks like an average normal guy you'd see in the grocery store, but his eyes, he was so focused. And then you look at Ken Shamrock, who was like Captain America. I thought, man, I felt bad for Hoyce. I'm like, man, this poor guy is going to get pounded. This dude is just going to do a number. But it was that thing of applying all of those principles. Not only did he keep himself safe, 
he also, you know, he won obviously in, in rewrote history. But I remember seeing that as a karate black belt. And I thought, yeah, but you know, I, I'm sure I could, I'm sure I could hit him before he'd take me down. Oh, they have to take me down. Oh, they can't take me down. <laughs> then you watch Gracie challenge matches, takedown after takedown after takedown, very predictable responses. And so I was embarrassed to say, I was going to say ashamed, but more embarrassed to say that my my you know much younger self looked at that and said, oh, that's just kind of a fluke. And you get two ranges of people, people that just say, oh, I can handle it, no problem. And they don't think about it. And then the other group that just sort of buries their head in the sand and doesn't want to confront reality. Because you're right, a lot of people don't understand what real confrontations look like. They see it in movies where the hero just goes and clips somebody on the jaw and then they go and they, they leave with the leading, you know, leading whatever. Um, but it's, it, there was a little bit of a ramble on my part, but I guess what I was saying was jujitsu gets you to the essence of reality. Like, you know, it's like, it takes you to the essence of, okay, here's how somebody's going to react when you're on top of them. A lot of people will buck like crazy. And if you don't have good hooks, you're going to get thrown off. That's reality. And, um, and it teaches you to ingrain yourself for being prepared for what real like real responses are going to feel like because we also we do keep it playful we do keep it real and you know every like shade in between um so if you had one thing to say to somebody who says no i i got this like I, i'm good like if you could if if your best friend somebody in your family said no 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 i, I don't need jujitsu for self-defense it's not going to happen to me what what would you what would you tell them because you obviously have a lot of experience well, you know, I, I would say, you know what, I, I, I'm very happy for you that you're such a lucky person because, you know, violence doesn't happen because you go after it all the time. Sometimes it happens because you're there and it, it doesn't matter like where you are or, you know, what you may be doing. Sometimes it just shows up and you're in the way. So, you know, it's a lot like car insurance or, or you know, any other type of insurance. You never want to use it. But when it happens and you need it, you know, it, it's a bad you feeling it. you don't have it. And, you know, kind of like a parachute. If you if you ever need one, really need one, uh, you only need it once. And if you don't have it, it won't be a problem ever again. So, you know, I always, uh, you know, let them know that, okay, I, I think that's fantastic that you're that well prepared. But then I ask him, well, what would you do? And uh, I used to run into this with a lot of my um buddies back in special forces. And I would ask him, well, well you know, well, what are you going to do? And, and a lot of times the guys, and, and unfortunately, some of the biggest, um, you know, resistors to the training are the military and the law enforcement guys. They, and, and part of it's because they have to convince themselves that they're, they're good or they can't do the job. You know, they're not going to be able to walk out there and face what could happen if they start to analyze it too much and realize, hey, there's a lot of holes in the game. But, you know, one of the things that, that I brought from Special Forces is this idea of always evaluating whatever you've just done, whatever training event, whatever mission, whatever task, and kind of analyzing it to find out, well, what did you do right? What could you do better? And what do we need to do next to continue to improve? And, and so that is one of the things that I try to get people to look at. And like I said before, when I would ask my my military buddies, well, what are you going to do? A lot of times their response is, well, I would just shoot them. And so I would inadvertently, you know, lightly, you know, like slap them or push them or whatever and say, okay, shoot me. And then, and then, you know, at the time, 
a lot of them didn't even have a weapon. I said, well, where's your, where's your pistol? Where's your rifle? You can't shoot me. You can't solve all the issues with that one solution. So you need options. And I say the same thing to, you know, other folks that, that are civilians when I talk to them about, well, what are you going to do if this happens? And, you know, some of them now, because concealed carry weapons are a big thing, a lot of them have the same reply. And then I say, okay, well, I'll be sure to visit you in jail. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? I said, well, you know, you can't just apply that to every situation without facing, you know, very serious legal trouble at the end of it and going to jail. So you got to have options. And, and you know, I, I asked them as well, you know, is there one food that you'd want to eat all your life? And most people will say, no, you know, I like this, I like that. I like variety. And I say, well, then, then you understand the value of options. And that's very important when it comes to protecting yourself, protecting your family and your friends and people that you care about. That is, that is super cool. That, that is, that is really cool. Um, and also I'm a big believer that, you know, you can have people who are great people, but who have a bad day. And if I, mm -hmm. if I have a, you know, if I have a pistol and somebody attacks me, I don't think that I would want to shoot them because of the repercussions, not only for them, but also for me, how that would feel if I all of a sudden you know, broke up a family because I, I shot somebody, right? So for me, it's de-escalation is one of the things I love so much about our classes is we, we most frequently, we talk about de-escalation. It's, you know, sometimes it's just like, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry I took your parking spot. Like truly, I, I didn't know you were waiting for it. I, I'm sorry. And the person who is the biggest hothead you know, can hear that and go, oh, say, hey, listen, I'm sorry. It's your spot. It's all yours. Problem solved, right? Nobody got shot. Nobody got beat up, right? And so overcoming ego and, and the de-escalation and obviously knowing how to de-escalate while still keeping a very keen eye if the person can still be dangerous, right? I think that that's a skill that is a super valuable skill, especially in this day and age where it feels like people have gotten to be so looking for reasons to be upset about something. And, uh, you know, de-escalation is a great skill. You're right. It's great to have all the options. What happens, you know, if, like you said, if your weapon is not at home, you know, not with you, right? What happens if your weapon's at home? So, I mean, these are all super, like super valuable lessons. And I, I really enjoy the time that we've taken to like talk through these things. And so I think that we're, we're coming up a little bit, a little bit close on time. And also I want to be very respectful of your time because this has been so generous of you to come and do this. Um, and what, for my listeners also, what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop a link to, uh, you know, drop a link to Randy school in my bio. I definitely suggest you check him out definitely check out, you know, his, his socials and what he's doing. And, um, and Randy, what would you, do you have any sort of like last thoughts that you would like, are there any questions that you wished I would have asked that I didn't ask? <laughs> um, well, you know, there's always more to talk about when it comes to jujitsu and, and, you know, I go back to that one key thing about small details make a huge difference in, in any endeavor that you're working on. So um, I would say that, especially to people that are on the fence about whether or not to try jujitsu. And those small details are going to be located in where you train and who you train with. And, you know, it, it's not about just having key details with each technique. It's really about having key details in your entire program. And, you know, it goes back to that culture to that, you know, systemization of how things are structured. And, you know, I frequently tell uh, folks that are in my instructor training programs that toddlers can't eat steak. 
And a lot of that really comes down to the idea that, you know, you can only digest what you're ready for. So it's got to be presented in certain stages. And a lot of times folks in our classes will, will ask, you know, well, how do I get out of this? How do I avoid that? And our answer at the time, especially in, uh, you know, what we call our essentials level, which uh, is, you know, our white to blue beginner level is don't get in it. And that's mainly because we want them to first and foremost set a default in their system to where they avoid those things as much as possible. Then once they get a little further along, we're going to show them how to get out of it. We're going to show them techniques to escape, to defend, and, you know, be in a better position to deal with it. But initially, we want to make sure that they avoid it at all costs. And the same is true in life with certain things, you know, those fights that you were talking about. If you can avoid them at all costs, things will always turn out better. And that's, you know, a good idea. So, you know, anything that you want to be successful at will benefit from the right details and the right people as part of your program, especially as a mentor. And I would encourage people to, you know, it's kind of like uh, going to the doctor. If the first doctor gives you, uh, you know, a not so great diagnosis, you might want to get a second opinion. And that's very true when you're trying jujitsu schools so that you find the right one for you. And, you know, we realize that, hey, we're not the right school for everybody that comes through our door. And when we're not, we try to recommend them and, and refer them to somebody that's, you know, especially if they're oriented and, and really wanting to do competition, we want to help them with their, that goal. And that's really what we focus on from the minute anybody comes in the door, gets on the mat or does anything with us is finding out what their goals are and, you know, doing what we can to help them, even if that means sending them somewhere else, because that's going to have a better impact on our culture it's going to be better for them. Everybody's going to be happier and it's a win-win. And, you know, we always say that nobody cares what you know until they know how much you care. And first and foremost, it's important to start caring about the people that, you know, come through your door if you own a school. And the reason that's easy for me is because I look at it every day and I think about what I used to do from construction to the military to all those things. And I think about what a great opportunity I have now to do something you know, every day that I love to work with my son doing it and to have those things in my life. And it's all because of the people that come through the door and how much we try to help them achieve their goals. That is super cool. And that is great advice, right? I, I think that, you know, if, if somebody's listening and they're on the fence about training, or again, you know, maybe they've trained and they didn't have a great experience, definitely go check out some free trial programs, right? Go visit, go visit multiple schools and see where the fit is, Right. I think that that is, I think that's great advice because culture is everything. And, you know, you loving what you do as an instructor, you're not going to feed steak to the baby, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, Randy, this has been an absolute pleasure in talking with you. And I'm probably going to pester you to come back on the show again, because I feel like we could talk for 10 hours straight. Um, but uh, definitely, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And like I said, I will be following up for everybody uh, you know, with links to your school. And also, hopefully, I, we could keep the door open for having you come back on again sometime soon. Absolutely. I would love to. Any chance I get to talk about jujitsu with somebody that, you know, obviously loves it as well is a great, great time, great way to spend my moments. And so I'll, I'll jump at the chance. Well, I am, I am grateful for that. I'm grateful for you. And until next time, thank you very much. Thank you, sir.